Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Deathly Afraid. My name's Brian. And I'm Whitley. And that's our dogs. That's our dogs. Barking and running around the house like crazy. How was your week on this beautiful Wednesday that we are having? It's been actually pretty good so far. Yeah, yeah. I did some things. Some things. Yeah, and then I did some other things. And then you did a thing today. And yeah. That was called work. No, the other thing. What thing did I do today? The thing you texted me about. Oh, oh my goodness. I bought a ticket for the St. Jude's Dream Homes. Oh, I didn't tell you the best part about that home. If we win it, it has a secret room that becomes our recording studio. But it's in Cuna. I know I don't want to live in Cuna. Don't want to live in Cuna. <laughs> Sorry for everyone that lives in Cuna. We, we could sell, sell the house and build our own recording studio here. I like that idea. Yeah. But I get the truck. I didn't see anything about a truck, but I get the truck. Okay, I have a truck. <laughs> You're talking too quiet. Look at this. The thing's all the way turned up. up. I don't know what you want me to know. You want you to talk aloud. I don't know what we're yelling about. I don't know either. Um, how was your week, Brian? It's been good so far. Starting to pick up at work and it's been been nice being able to have the shop door open these last couple of days and with the nice weather, yeah. Well it's like yesterday it was like the perfect temperature. It wasn't too hot, it wasn't too cold, it was just like a nice breeze going in the shop and so it makes it nice being able to have the door open and not feel kind of secluded from everything else. Right. We actually got hot in work today. We usually, me and my coworker usually run the heater all day and everyone gets mad at us. But we actually turned it off and we had the doors open. It was hot. So it was kind of nice. I walked outside and the sun was so bright and shiny. We've been trying to think of all the... Crazy stuff that we need to get done around the house and everything with how busy of a weekend we're going to have. And Yeah, we have family coming into town. Our oldest son decided that he wanted to get baptized. So we said we, we support him in whatever he wants to do. So that is this weekend and our family's all coming into town for that. So he is excited. On top of that, then he's got baseball on saturday after that and then he's got two baseball games on sunday and yeah we got crazy on the next weekend we got two birthdays and yeah baseball baseball and (laughs) life is crazy and we're still doing this podcast right (laughs) so yeah should we uh jump just jump into it just jump man just jump just jump you're first all right. 
So this week I am going to read a story called The Hotel off of Creepypasta. Ooh, it's so creepy. <laughs> they got a lot of good stories on there and they're all like user user. I guess they are users because it's Creepypasta is a place to submit your stories. So yeah. it's technically user stories. I guess if they're users. That's creepy pasta. stories. I have a hair in my eye and it's really bugging me. You have a hairy eyeball? I do. Okay. Speaking of eyeballs, <laughs> I have to tell you this story first because you're going to laugh so hard. So the guy at our work, he got shot in the eye with one of those Orby guns, right? Yeah. And was having a lot of issues. There was bleeding in his eyes. Everything. So be careful with the Orbigans if you have them. Anyway, he'd been going to the doctor. He wasn't able to work because he has like no vision out of that eye. And they were having to dilate it and everything. Yeah. And he came in today and was telling us, because he came back to work, was telling us that the, <laughs> the doctor said he damaged his sphincter in his life. <laughs> and I said... Did you tell him it wasn't your brown eye? Which <laughs> <Yeah>. eyeball? <laughs> but apparently you have a sphincter muscle in your eye as well. Huh. I did not know this. I also didn't look it up. So the doctor could just be effing with him. But we were laughing so kind of funny, We were laughing so hard. <laughs> Especially because his son is the one that shot him in the eye with it. We're like, your son damaged your sphincter. <laughs> for that. That's funny. So that was my funny story for a minute. It's pretty funny. I like that. Okay. So creepy pasta, what was it called? The hotel. Ooh. Yeah. I'm ready. All right. Buscetti. So the Broughton Palace was perhaps the nicest hotel I had ever stayed at. Dozens of floors, casinos, buffets. An Olympic-sized swimming pool, and it even had a massive arcade. Just one of the many perks of this sweet-ass job, I thought to myself. I was hired by this marketing firm, Loomis Company. Due to my past work as a war photojournalist, it wasn't a career shift I necessarily expected, but the morbid affairs of war and American politics took their toll on my psyche and my shrink recommended something tamer to offset the years of depravity I saw firsthand. To my surprise, it didn't take long to find this new job. In fact, it found me. The people who hired me were chomping at the bit to get me into the ranks, saying they specialized in scouting popular locations with hidden morbid stories, or something like that. Apparently, there was a huge ghost hunting craze happening on cable TV, and Loomis Company was responsible for finding the few locations left that hadn't been visited to death by paranormal investigators. Personally, I found the paranormal to be bullshit. I had full confidence that the true hell was on Earth, but it was a surprisingly well-paying job that had the full support from my therapist, so I accepted it almost immediately. Plus, with benefits like traveling and staying in four-star hotels like the Broughton Place. Can't beat that. 
I walked through one of the many automatic glass doors, having already given my very sparse luggage to the bellhop to take to my room. Even the lobby was magnificent, with multiple cafes and lounges and a clear view of one of the casinos. I approached one of the women behind the check-in desk, the lines non-existent as it was the middle of the week during the off-season. Yes, I have a room reserved through Luma's company. The name should be under Joseph Harvey, and I informed the well-dressed lady as I rummaged through my wallet for the necessary credentials. She held up her hand and smiled brightly. Oh, no need, Mr. Harvey. We've been expecting you, she replied in an ominous tone. I froze, my blood running cold. Excuse me? The woman laughed. Ah, didn't mean to put you on edge, Mr. Harvey. The whole staff knows why you're here, to help us establish Broughton Palace as a haunted hotspot for TV, right? I laughed in return. Yeah, of course. Sorry, I wasn't expecting everyone to know why I'm here. Well, we're all very excited, to be honest. This place is filled with all sorts of ghost stories that the staff is dying to share with you. But rest assured, we'll let you settle in and enjoy the non-ghostly commodities the Broughton Palace has to offer. The night staff especially will give you the best experience. The woman chuckled, and with that, they gave me a selection of different cards that that allowed me to gamble at the casino with money provided by the hotel, a buffet card to get food, and of course my room card. I was on the 18th floor in room 1883. By no means was it a penthouse. In fact, I was a bit disappointed that the room was more reminiscent of a standard hotel room. Two beds, a TV, microwave, the basics. I quickly got over my disappointment. However, as the commodities certainly made up for the lackluster room, It also had a gorgeous view of the coast that was less than a mile away from the hotel. Since I had arrived only a few hours after noon, I had plenty of daylight to burn, so I went to use my new cards extensively. The casino treated me well at first, with a few machines allowing me to win big before taking it all away, which was par for the course of my prior gambling experiences. This led me to the arcade where I found my casino card also worked and spent a ridiculous amount of time playing crane games and shooters. My growling stomach then directed me to the massive buffet where I tried all sorts of different meats from from the separated regional dishes sections with their angel hair pasta being especially exquisite, finishing just in time for night to begin to fall and drowsiness to creep into my school. Noticing the amount I ate and the slight layer of fat beginning to form at my stomach, I opted to take the stairs for some exercise before I took a short nap. As I entered the bottom of the stairwell, I noticed how empty and well, haunting it was. I pulled out one of the cameras that I had brought with me and snapped a few pictures. I had taken a few earlier, but there honestly wasn't much to document other than some sad old people losing their money in the casino, so I mainly just grabbed some location shots earlier. The stairwell was giving me a completely different vibe, however. For the first time since arriving, I felt a little creeped out, and this aura of sadness filled the air. I snapped a bunch of pictures of each new floor, mostly as an excuse to give myself a breather. 
and when I reached floor 18, I took a few more. I turned quickly to go through the door and get back to my room, and more importantly, my bed for a nap, when I saw something out of the corner of my eye. I twisted back around with the astounding sight of nothing, causing me to chuckle to myself. All this damn haunted shit making me see things, I thought aloud, shaking my head. I could have sworn I saw a figure crouching at the top of the stairwell, but it was only for a split second that it couldn't have been possibly anything but the trick of the brain. I walked through the door out of the stairwell, ignoring the quick, odd-sucking sound that reminded me of sobbing as just the creaking of the door. Before I could make it to my room, however, I spotted a maid exiting from my door. She was fairly short and young, maybe a year or two younger than me, with bright blue eyes and brown hair. Normally I would have been a bit irritated as I didn't request house cleaning, nor had I been in my room long enough to cause a mess, but her cute appearance distracted me from that fact. So, oh, Mr. Harvey, my apologies. We just wanted to make sure your room was in tip-top condition for the duration of your stay here. I'll get out of your hair, she squeaked in an almost timid manner. Does everyone here know my damn name? I thought, but put a kind smile on my face. Don't worry, I understand. I'm just going to take a nap for a bit before I do my interviews for the night. I reassured her, walking past her to my door. Do you have any stories you'd like to share later tonight? I asked as I swiped my card and placed my hand on the handle. Her eyes lit up. Oh yes, I've had some creepy experiences here. I'll be working on a problem in 1693 if you need to find me later tonight. Besides, it's better that way anyways. There's still daylight left. Stories like that are best experienced at night. My name is Liz, by the way. She replied giddily. I smirked at her in turn. I'll be looking for you first then, Liz. The maid giggled some more as she winked and waved by at me as I closed my door. Ah, my bed at last. I thought as I face-planted into the mattress, looking up only to set my alarm on my phone for two hours, and almost immediately drifted away into sleep. Nightmares typically don't follow you into the real world, so after I awoke from a troubled sleep, I naturally felt more ordeal was over. I didn't normally suffer from night terrors, but I had seen some horrific stuff documenting war, so it was only natural that I had them on occasion. My mouth was dry as crap and tasted about the same, so I groggily emerged from my warm bed and headed towards the bathroom. During the process of relieving myself, I yawned, trying to understand why the feeling of dread still had yet to leave my body. A rustle from behind the shower curtain drew my attention, but after quickly yanking it back revealed nothing, I chuckled to myself, turning to face the mirror right as it exploded. Oh my gosh, that would be scary. Right? A mirror exploded? Yeah. Dang. That would be nuts. Yeah. Sorry. I shouldn't have talked. It happened so swiftly, I could hardly process, save for shielding my face with my arms. I slumped back, groaning in pain, but thankfully most of what hit me were embedded in my forearms. However, the horror that stepped through the broken remains of the mirror almost made me wish 
that the glass had blinded me. He was me, or some sort of demented version of me, emaciated with gore caked around the numerous mouths that peppered his body. I would have thought to I would have thought them to be tattooed if not for their incessant gnawing in the air. The false me leered from behind his wall of thick black hair, the only non-horrific difference between us. Besides the gnashing of teeth, the false me made no noise, even when his bare feet walked across the broken glass. The closer he crept, the stronger the fear that gripped my body in place held, until he was right in my face, the numerous mouths on his upper body and head licking their lips. Two of his macabre hands wrapped around my neck, and only then did the pain of the jaws in his palms chewing on my throat shock me into action, grabbing a large glass shard and jamming it into his stomach and twisting. The false me immediately let go, and his dozens of mouths screamed in anguish, Hurt me! Hurt me! I didn't bother to wait for his retaliation. I kicked the false me in the stomach, simultaneously driving the glass deeper into his stomach while also knocking him back, freeing me. I rushed out of the bathroom, ignoring the small glass fragments now embedded in my soles. With my eyes still locked on the bathroom entrance, I thrust my hand into my camera bag. It turned out to be a wise decision to keep watch of the bathroom. The false me crawled out, his bones snapping into place as he stood up, his numerous mouths back to their fervent gnashing. He launched himself at me, hands opened to take another bite out of my neck. Bang! The shot rang out, and the bullet knocked the false me off course, causing him to crash into the spare bed. Before he could recuperate again, I forced my gun into the main mouth on his head and blew his head off. I waited for a moment, holding the gun to the center of his chest in case he resuscitated once more, but none of his mouths were moving, and after I was satisfied he was dead, I fell back onto the floor, horrified. What the F? What the F? I cried to myself, unable to process the situation. I felt like I was thrust back into the middle of some sort of battle, but instead of the sidelines... I was the combatant this time. However, I forced myself to regain as much composure as I could. I quickly changed into fresh clothes and pulled the glass from from my feet and arms, treating them quickly and likely poorly. But I felt my room was no longer safe to dwell in. However, after attempting and failing to call anyone on the phone, I had a growing fear that this may be true for everywhere in the hotel. With fresh clothes and bandages wrapped around my arms and feet, I slung my pack over my shoulder and counted my bullets. The Glock 17 was true to its namesake, and since I kept it fully loaded, I still had 15 to spare. I sucked in a deep breath and slowly opened my door, my gun at the ready. My assumption was correct, as a simple look into the hallway confirmed that whatever was happening wasn't contained to just my room, Entrails and other assorted gore covered the walls, and the hallway looked far more decrepit than it had before. I I nearly wretched at the steaming piles of apparently fresh innards that surrounded me, pulling my shirt over my nose in an attempt to block out the smell. 
Suddenly, a blindingly fast figure pushed past me, nearly knocking me on my ass. I quickly regained my composure, nearly fully stepping out to see what the heck just ran past me, but there was no need. It came back to me. Every ounce of my being was needed not to make a sound as a being with the appearance of an impossibly tall man crouched down by my door, sniffing the entrance. He was obviously blind, as he didn't have the upper part of his head. It was as if it was a clean cut right above the nose, and strangely enough, a large plumage of brightly colored feathers replaced the top of his head. I slowly raised my gun, but hesitated to pull the trigger. This thing was thin and gangly, and was obviously attracted to sound, so the gun would either work really well or backfire completely, which was not a risk I was about to take. The feather man kept sniffing the feathers on kept sniffing the feathers on his flat top head rustling occasionally when his face came close to my body. Gloria Gloria dear, where are you? Shaky voice called out, snapping the feather man's attention down the hall as well as mine. One of the old folks I had seen earlier in the casino had wandered out of his room, a feeble old man using a walker to move around. The feather man at first didn't leave his spot at my door, leaving me helpless in turn to warn the old man and prevent him from making any more noise. Gloria, I don't like these decorations. They scare me. Gloria, he kept calling. The feather man tilted its head, a grin forming on its pale face. I watched as nothing more than a useless bystander as the old man shakily pulled out his glasses from his nightgown, a look of pure horror spreading across his face as his gaze fell upon the decapitated head of an older woman who I could only deduce as Gloria. Lord in heaven above, no, Gloria! And with that final utterance of his love's name, the feather man was upon him. It was a terrifying sight, as even despite being severely hunched over, the feather man was easily faster than any Olympic sprinter. With one blink, the, monsters, the monster was in front of me. The next, he was lifting the screaming old man. I went to aim my gun, but when I noticed the other side of the hallway, the one which turned a corner and led to the stairwell, was free of any danger. I knew what was the smart choice. However, I couldn't look away from the sight that was unfolding before me. The feather man wasted no time with the old man. Please God, Jesus our Lord and Savior, the old man prayed as the feather man wrapped his massive hands around the geezer's head, its smirk growing ever wider. The old man continued praying as the feather man's throat began to bulge and then his mouth widened as a horrendous-looking peafowl creature emerged from its unhinged maw. It was only the head and neck of the bird monster, and it looked to be some unholy combination of a vulture and peacock. The bird twitched its head, and then the hands of the feather man pried open the jaws of the crying old man, and with one more twitch, the peafowl slammed its beak down the old man's throat and ripped out his tongue and vocal cords. The feather man let the corpse fall to the ground before kneeling beside it allowing the bird to feast on the body further. As the monster gorged itself, I slowly started towards the corner, away from the gruesome sight. A sigh nearly escaped my mouth as I turned the corner, 
but I was thankfully able to quiet myself. The door to the stairwell was completely unimpeded, so I carelessly went to grab the door handle to push it open, slipping on an intestine that was strewn across the carpet, and my finger instinctively squeezed the trigger of my gun. My brain was able to operate quickly enough after the explosion of sound, twisting my body around to fire off one, two, three, four rounds at the body of the feather man, who had already cleared the corner and was mere feet away. I was about to unload the rest of my bullets into the monster when I noticed he had stopped, sniffing the doorway again, feathers ruffling in agitation. That's when I put two and two together. It didn't seem to be able to leave the hallways. I wasn't too keen on testing that hypothesis, but circumstance forced my hand. Quietly, I shut the stairwell door, and surprisingly, the feather man didn't react. A massive wave of guilt washed over me when my assumption was proven correct. I could have saved that old man. Through the vertical rectangular window, I watched the feather man leave the door and wander back up the hallway. And I slammed my arm against the wall. Effing coward, I growled at myself through the gritted teeth, wiping away tears. The whole situation had been effed, and the monster wasn't even dead. I may have been firing blindly, but I did manage to hit it three times, as I saw the impact marks on its body. That abomination didn't even care, and must have only been noticed. The horrors continued as I made my way down the stairs, as a chubby young black man lay sobbing against the wall, but when I went to help him, he turned to face me, displaying his slit-open wrists with his veins still pumping blood. Ew. Why? Why did she leave me? Was that not good enough? He wailed, but I pushed him off me and hurriedly made my way down to the ground floor. Just as I was about to enter the main lobby, the wails of the sobbing man quickly filled my ears again, as well as a sickening splat. The splash of a warm substance on my back confirmed my suspicions, so I did not turn around. I rushed through the lobby, everything a twisted version of what I had seen earlier in the day. The reception lady I spoke to when I had arrived was no longer alone. Her head was affixed to a stake, as well as numerous other female attendants, and they were being operated like puppets by some grotesque beast that appeared to be made up entirely of snake tails with no head or body in sight. That's weird. Enjoying your stay, Mr. Harvey? Would you like to check out? You have all you need in your hand there. The head of the receptionist left, the mask of snake tails tossing her bloodied head in order to mime her mouth moving. I looked down at my hand and my gun and realized what the head was implying. Instead of complying, I flipped her off and debated shooting at the disturbing sight but decided to save the bullets. However, my original plan of walking out the front doors were immediately dashed as I peered through the glass doors and massive windows of the lobby. I couldn't see anything of the outside world. What appeared to be dirt and rock blocked all ground-level exits. No, 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 I screamed, slamming a chair against the glass. It busted as, ex busted as expected, but my hopes of the buried state of the ground floor being an illusion were crushed. It felt real. There was no way I could dig my way out of it. The row of heads behind the reception counter did nothing but laugh at my vain attempts 
and in frustration, I ran to one of the closest casinos. This proved to be a poor decision, as the casinos were not sparred. Spared. They were not sparred. They were not sparred. This proved to be a poor decision, as the casinos were not spared the hotel's hellish makeover. The machines were still brightly colored, but wires and tubes sprouted from them and had plunged themselves deep into their patrons' skin and orifices. As I spun around in horror, I realized this was not to kill the people they had captured, but rather to sustain them as they were forced to continue playing their games. Players would cry and struggle as their blood and organs were taken as payment for a game, and the slot machines would pump them full of some strange blue liquid that appeared to sustain their captives. The slot machines were also scuttling around like massive insects, and three began approaching me with their tubes and wires whipping around like tendrils. I fired off three shots into the machines as I darted away, and two of them powered down as the bullets pierced their screens. I sprinted down another hallway and stumbled into the dining area where the macabre sight of human gore, fingernails, severed animal heads, and squirming maggots filled the buffet area along with foul things that made me vomit. A waiter with the lower half of a millipede was scuttling around, fixing himself a plate of horrific obscenities when he noticed me and smiled brightly, his mandibles spilling out of his mouth. Ah, Mr. Harvey, here for seconds? I could tell you really like the angel hair pasta. He laughed, pulling a human scalp with blonde hair from a pile of scalps at the buffet. I retched again, only this time I felt something odd in my throat. And pulled, and pulled a long mass of blonde hair out of my throat. A small, a small chunk of meat still attached at the bottom. The millipede waiter laughed some more as I violently threw up any remnants of what was left in my stomach. But his laughter was cut short when I put a bullet through his head, causing his body to lurch over, sending his face into a pile of maggots. I quickly exited the buffet, trying and failing to return to any sort of composure. I had no effing clue on what to do when a realization hit me. The roof. I recalled glancing out my window when the false me had attacked, and the view was the same as before, meaning there was a chance only the ground floor was buried. If I could make it to the top and gauge how deep the lower floors are buried, I, might, I just might have a chance of getting out of this hotel. I opted for the elevators this time, as I wasn't keen on seeing the aftermath of the stairwell man's jump, and surprisingly, they seemed normal. That is, until I stepped into one, and the walls, floor, and ceiling began throbbing, and large, white teeth emerged at the doors. I had walked into a mouth. Before I could act, I was thrust upwards into a fleshy throat and blacked out. I woke some time later to pleasant humming, as, and as my eyes fluttered open, I gazed upon yet another horrific sight. The room must have originally been just another standard hotel room, but it had been cleared out for numerous small and few large torture devices. The main attraction was a massive torture rack, simple in its design but effective in its purpose, as I watched the current occupant's right arm slowly get ripped off as he screamed for mercy. 
His torturer was unsurprisingly another horrid being, but a familiar one. Wearing a very revealing dominatrix getup and walking on nothing more than unnaturally long and exposed broken leg bones was Liz, the maid I had run into earlier. Hearing me stir, she turned in my direction and smiled, kicking a lever on the rack behind her and releasing the tortured corpse to fall to the ground. Mr. Harvey, or should I say, Joseph? After all, we are about to get to know each other on a far more personal and intimate level. She purred, moving closer to me with more elegance than one could assume possible on shattered, broken bone. It was like she was weightless, and the two bones protruding out of the ragged flesh of her exposed legs never seemed to be a hindrance. How did I get here? I asked, straining against my restraints. I was tied down to a bed with string, and she taped her fingers. I was tied down to a bed with string, and she tapped her fingers along my chest, her nails long and caked with blood. I also noticed the string was weak. You made a promise to me, Joseph, to interview me, and the hotel held you true to that. It deposited you here, right outside this room, while I was cleaning up for another guest of ours. He was quite messy, so I needed to speak with him personally. She explained, nodding to the naked corpse on the floor by the rack. That's when I noticed my gun and bag on the floor near the bathroom, and a plan formed in my head. I decided to keep Liz talking. What happened to you? This place? I asked, squirming slightly as she leaned on the bed with a smirk, basically laying her head in my stomach. Joseph, you already know the answer. That's the whole reason you came. The Broughton Palace is haunted, so obviously you want the best haunted experience you can get, right? She giggled, just barely digging her nails into my gut. But this is real. Why is it real? Because authenticity is the best, and Broughton Palace provides. Now let's get started. We've wasted most of the night already. Before she could finish, I launched my knee up, crashing it straight into the side of her head. With all the strength I could muster, I yanked both hands free, tearing through my skin but ultimately freeing myself. I grabbed Liz by the head and kneed her again, this time in the face, and shoved her into the side of the wall as I hopped off the bed and grabbed my bag and gun, checking to make sure my ammo was still there. I turned to face the now bloodied and very pissed Liz, who noticed the gun in my hand. You don't have enough bullets, she snarled and launched herself over the bed to pounce at me. Two bullets went into her before I dashed out into the hallway, and when I slammed the door behind me, I saw her getting back up. Strangely enough, however, when I made it back to the stairwell entrance, she wasn't following me. I then noticed the floor number I was on, 16, and my mind refocused on my original goal, the roof. So I sprinted and ran as hard as I could, up flight after flight of stairs. I saw the chubby black man a few more times, but he seemed harmless, only wanting to beg for answers as to why, and take a dive to the ground floor, only to show back up again a few floors later. I even caught a glimpse at other monsters that looked like the Feather Man through those small stairwell door windows, sniffing about for their next victim. Eventually, I made it up to the top of the hotel, and after crashing through the door, 
I was greeted with the typical coastal city night sky. The town below was still glowing with lights from numerous bars and other stores still open. Cars moved up and down the streets occasionally. The bottom of the Broughton Palace even looked normal, with the lobby entrance definitely above ground. No, what the F? What the F? I stammered, staggering back as I ran toward the stairwell door. I darted inside and looked down the immense flight of stairs, and sure enough, the chubby black man was only a few flights down. He looked up at me, blood gushing from his arms. Why? he called up. F, I shouted as I stormed back out onto the roof and lifted my gun into the air, firing all but one round into the night sky. Leaning against the side of the building, I started sobbing. Those bullets were my penultimate solution, a desperate attempt at maybe attracting the local authorities to my location and saving me from this hell. But I should have known it wouldn't be that easy. Glancing out into the dwindling night sky over the coast, I noticed something, or rather three somethings. At first, it was only slight ripples in the water, but as daylight began to creep over the horizon, so too did three massive, solid, black obelisks. Each one was identical, and each one had about a hundred feet behind them. I did not know what they were, nor their purpose, but the mere sight alone of them filled me with more dread than anything that had occurred during the night as if they were composed of pure terror and fear and seeped that energy to any who dared look upon them. I weakly lifted my gun and fired the last bullet into the air direction, and when nothing happened, I crawled up onto the edge of the hotel roof. The sun had almost fully risen, and the obelisks were almost at the beach. I did not want to see what horrors they would bring upon the world, so I took one look back at the hotel before sauntering off the edge, plunging 34 stories to the ground below. Screams and shouting filled my ears almost as much as the incessant ringing as well as some unfamiliar voices. Someone call an ambulance. Did he jump? Yeah, right off the effing roof. He should be dead. A familiar voice appeared. Everyone, please back away. Medical officials will be here shortly to move him to a hospital. It was a receptionist. He should have been dead. That's when my eyes finally opened, and I saw what was left of my mangled body. My legs were practically a red paste. One arm had practically broken off due to the impact, and the other one was somewhere twisted under me. Muff, muff, I tried to speak, but only broken teeth. Blood and a piece of my tongue came out. The receptionist looked down at me, worriedly, shooing the small crowd away as an ambulance pulled in. She crouched down beside me, smiling as the EMTs hurried in our direction. I, in an almost inaudible whisper, she leaned and said, I hope you enjoyed your stay at the Broughton Palace. <laughs> That's creepy. Right? <laughs> so the goal is to get the guess to kill themselves i guess yes because i mean when he was down there in the lobby they were like you got all you need right there in your hand buddy right that's weird yeah creepy also the thing that i hated the most was the, the hair, hair <laughs> the scalp attached to it what are you talking about this angel hair pasta that grossed me out hair pasta. yes that grossed me out i didn't like that <laughs>
Cool. Thanks for that image, Brian. All right. Well, do you want to talk about part two? Yeah. All right. Okay. So last week. Yes. We talked about the Ken and Barbie killers. Okay. So we talked about their backgrounds of Paul and Carla, how they met. Paul was already a rapist and Carla was just cool with it. We talked about the murder of Carla's younger sister, Tammy, and the rape of a Jane Doe. And this week, we're going to go over the remaining murders, trials, and where these guys are at now. Hopefully dead. They not. No? This happened in the 90s, brother. I don't mean they be dead. <laughs> they were young. Well, I guess, I mean, they could have died other ways, but. So there was one thing that I did forget to mention in the first episode that um, happened after Tammy's death. So after Tammy died, Paul would videotape Carla dressed up in like Tammy's clothes and stuff. And she would basically pretend to be Tammy and like talk in a voice that sounded like Tammy just for Paul to get aroused. <laughs> I don't know how else That's to say that. freaking weird. It's super gross. So. These people, man. Right? So, just so, they're so gross. They're super gross. So, we're going to jump right back into this. On the morning of June 15th of 1991, while driving through Burlington, stealing license plates, Paul noticed a 14-year-old girl named Leslie Maffey. I don't know if that's how you actually... Maffey. Maffey. It could be. (laughs) I have no idea. I'm not good at words. We all know this. It's no surprise. (laughs) Nobody's surprised. Leslie was locked out of her house, basically. She did not come home at curfew, and her parents were done, basically. They were like, this isn't the first time it's happened. You've been told multiple times. So their, um, how do you say it, like punishment, I guess, was to just lock her out at that point. So Paul approaches Leslie, and it's so weird. He he approaches her and tells her that he was trying to break into the neighbor's house, and she's just like, whatever. (laughs) Okay. Sure. (laughs) And so she basically just doesn't even care, and she asks Paul, you know, do you have a cigarette? And so he leads her to his car, at which point he blindfolds her and forces her into the car and drives back to the house. And then he told Carla that he has a new, a new victim for them. Paul and Carla videotaped themselves torturing and sexually abusing Leslie. While they listen to pop music, like they got like Backstreet Boys going on in the background or something. Like, it's tearing up a heart. <laughs> but it's just weird. Like in the videos, they got like pop music going and they're just, you know. So um, at one point, Paul tells Leslie, which is so cringy, you're doing a good job, Leslie, a damned good job. Then he says, the next two hours are going to determine what I do to you. Right now, you're scoring perfect. Is this a flipping test? Like what? That's weird. Yeah, it's. I don't even know. 
So at that point, the video just gets worse from there. And it shows Paul sodomizing Leslie while her hands are bound with twine. And she's like basically crying in pain and like begging him to stop, you know, all this stuff. So it's just horrible. Um, so at one point, Leslie's blindfold starts to slip, which to me, this part doesn't make their logic doesn't make sense in this because she already saw Paul. Right. When he picked her up and blindfolded her and kidnapped her. Yeah. Like he approached her without a blindfold. She knows what he looks like. Right. So the blindfold doesn't make sense to me. Their logic doesn't make sense to me. Um, so it begins to slip. They both get worried that she's going to be able to identify them and decide that they need to kill her now because she knows what they look like. Um, so they kill her. And once she's dead, they take her body down to the basement and then have Carla's family over for dinner. Like nothing just happened. Like literally they just done it. Yeah. And then her family comes over for dinner. Didn't say like how they did it. Like they just so I didn't put it in here because they like after the trials and everything, they're both blaming each other for it, and it's it's not clear who did it. Um, obviously Carla says that Paul killed her. He says that Carla killed her. Yeah. So yeah, it's just not clear what actually happened. Um, and you'll know why in a minute. (laughs) So they have her family over and after the family leaves, Carla and Paul decided that the best way to get rid of Leslie would be to dismember her. And they encased each part of her in concrete and throw her in a nearby lake. So Paul had gone to like the, um, hardware store, buys like a dozen bags of cement like the day after okay yeah. and the idiot kept all the receipts <laughs> what are you doing um so obviously at trial this is a big thing they're like hello you have all the receipts for all the concrete yeah so after this paul cuts her up with his grandfather's circular saw and it took him multiple trips to like dump the body like the cement blocks um in lake gibson which is 18 kilometers or 11 miles south of port dollhouse dollhouse yep south of port dollhouse i don't know dollhousey (laughs) no i have no idea um which is where they lived we know obviously from the first episode first episode first yeah i guess it's an episode i'm i don't know um so obviously we know paul and carla are engaged but it's only been like a few months after tammy's death so carla's family is actually asking him you know could you maybe postpone the wedding we're all still really grieving we're trying to get through this you know especially carla's father he's taking it super hard yeah and Carla was not having it. Tammy was not standing in the way of her dream wedding. She was getting married. Yeah. So, um, Paul and Carla were married on June 29th of 1991, which was the same day 
that the remains of Leslie are found. Like, is that not the weirdest crap? Right. They literally watched the news coverage in like between like things at their wedding. Like they'd done this and they're watching like it all unfold, like the discovery and everything at their wedding. That's just insane. Right? It's crazy. Um, so I read that at least one of the blocks weighed like 90 kilograms, which is 200 pounds. And so I guess they weren't able to like really get it far enough in there. So it was pretty close to the shore. And so when the water levels dropped, dropped, you could see it and that's how it was found. Um, they didn't, they were not able to sink it. So um, they're able to identify Leslie by her dental records. Basically, she had like an ortho, says orthodontic appliance. I don't know if that's that's kind of what I assumed it was, yeah. but I'm not hundred percent sure either. But that's how they identified her. Um. Okay. So now I'm going to talk to you about the next victim, which is Kristen French, on April sixteenth of nineteen ninety two. Paul and Carla drove through St. Catharines looking for potential victims. Um, so students are kind of, they're walking home from school and, but the streets are pretty empty at the time and they pass Holy Cross secondary school and they notice a 15 year old girl who is Chris, Kristen French. She's walking home after they pull into the parking lot of a nearby Grace Lutheran church. Carla gets out of the car and she kind of calls Kristen over and is like pretending to need direction. She's got a map and everything. And so Kristen goes over to help her. And at that point, Paul comes around behind her and attacks her and forces her into the front seat of the car with a knife. And then Carla jumps in the back seat and is basically, she's got, Kristen by the hair and is like holding her down. So from behind her. Yeah. Kristen's parents noticed right away. Like, I guess she was very like punctual about getting home. And so within like 15 minutes, they were like, this isn't right. She should be home. Like something's wrong. And they notified the police. And then within 24 hours, the Niagara regional police service had actually assembled a team that they used to search for route from school yeah. to search for clues and stuff or if there was any witnesses. This part made me mad. There were several witnesses who had seen the abduction. Just decided not to say anything? Nobody did shit. I was like, oh, look, she's getting abducted. Oh, well, not my problem. Like, I sincerely hope that I am not that type of person. Like, obviously, you don't know until it happens. But I hope to hell, if I saw someone getting abducted, that I would do something. Yeah. Like, that is crazy to me. They had several witnesses. It's just crazy. Could you imagine sitting there watching someone shove some kid in their car? No. And I, granted... If it's a little kid, you might be like, oh, maybe that's the parents and the kids being a butt. Yeah. But she is a teenage girl. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I, I understand how maybe you could think, oh, a little kid, they're being brat. 
you know, yeah. and you don't want to just be like, hey, don't treat your kid like that, you know, but a teenage girl getting abducted, I feel like is a little, a little, little bit easier yeah. to tell that they're getting abduct- abducted. You would think. Anyway, so Christian's shoe was actually found at that parking lot, but this kind of downplayed the seriousness of the abduction, which I don't know why that would downplay. It'd be like, they ripped her out of her shoe. Right. Right? I'm not a police man. So at the time they had abducted her, it was like over the Easter weekend. So the whole weekend, Paul and Carla videotaped themselves torturing and raping and sodomizing Kristen. They forced her to drink large amount lards. 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 Forced her to drink lard. I guess. <laughs> and on top of the lard, she was drink they were having her drink large amounts of alcohol and submit to Paul. So it's been said, you know, he's from the beginning they intended on killing Kristen. Like they weren't planning on ever letting her go. And um she was never blindfolded and all that stuff. So, you know, she could have identified them. And the following day, Paul and Carla murdered Kristen before going to Carla's for Easter dinner. Because apparently that's what they do after a murder. They get super hungry. <laughs> I'm sure it's work. They just go have dinner with their family after a murder. Right? Like nothing happens. Or whatever. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Like, how could you just act normal? But, I mean, they are nuts. So, there you go. Um, Kristen's nude body was found on April 30th of 1992 in a ditch in Burlington, which is about 45 minutes from St. Catharines. She had been washed and her hair was cut off. And initially... Like, investigators thought, like, someone had cut her hair, like, as a trophy to keep. But once, you know, they find out it's Carla and Paul and they talk to him about it, Carla, Carla? (laughs) Carla basically tells him, no, she cut her hair to impede the identification of her. Like, apparently, she doesn't know how identity works. Right. Like, if you shaved your hair off and your beard off, I'd still know you're you. Right. If I shaved my head, (laughs) if I shaved my head, would you be able to identify me? Yes. You'd be like, nah, her hair was much longer than that. She had a lot longer hair than that, I'm pretty sure. Like, so it's like, you guys, you're not as smart as you think you are. Right. So, on December 27th, Paul beat Carla with a flashlight. Like, severely beat her. So they got in a little tussle and um, he left like multiple bruises and everything all over. And Carla had claimed, you know, I was just in a car accident. You know, co-workers were asking about it. Like what, what happened? What's going on? You know, she's like, oh, I was in a car accident. It's fine. Um, Obviously they didn't believe her. So her co-workers calls her call her parents and her parents come and get her the following day and like physically remove her from the house. And 
after they come to get her, Carla like runs back into the house, frantically searching for something, but doesn't find it and comes back out or whatever. Um, I don't know what she was looking for, but probably the videos. Right. Um, So then Carla's parents take her to St. Catherine's general hospital where she actually gave a statement to the NRP that she was a battered spouse and filed charges against Paul. I mean, I guess he did beat her whatever that time. I don't know if she was constantly getting beat. Apparently he liked to be crazy. So it's possible that she is no saint. So you remember the DNA that Paul gave way back at the beginning in episode part one. (laughs) Yes. 26 months Later, they finally test the DNA. Dang. Yeah. So then they, you know, the lab tells the Toronto police, hey, yeah, this uh, this DNA you gave us, that's the Scarborough Rapist. <laughs> the guy we've been looking for for 26 months, and he gave us his DNA 26 months ago. That's him. The thing that all of... This other shit could have been prevented if they would have. If they would have ran the DNA when he freaking turned it in, right? Twenty six months. That's. I can only. Crazy. I can only imagine. That's over two years. The the parents of the people that got murdered filed lawsuits against them because of that. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. I didn't see anything about it, but I wouldn't be surprised. I would have. Right. They're like, he gave you his freaking DNA 26 months ago. Right. And you waited till he murdered how many more people now to run it? Right. It's crazy. So, even after, you know, they find out he's the Scarborough rapist, they just place him under 24-hour surveillance. Because I don't, I don't know how their laws work. I don't know if they can just, couldn't have just gone and arrested him, which I don't know why they couldn't. They have the DNA. They have the proof. Yeah. But they put him on 24-hour surveillance. And the Metro Toronto Sexual Assault Squad investigators, <laughs> which is a really long, like, they should just abbreviate that shit. Empty sass. <laughs> Empty sass. <laughs> <laughs> um, they interview Carla on February 9th of 1993. And... Despite hearing their suspicions about Paul, she kind of focused more on the, her abuse. Like, no, I want to talk about my... He's, he's beating me. Yeah. Don't you know? I'm I'm abused. And... um, But later that night, Carla actually tells her aunt and uncle, no, Paul, Paul is the Scarborough rapist. And... Uh, we were involved in the rape and murder of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. And all those rapes and murder, or not the murders, but all the rapes, they're recorded on videotape. We have it all. And so at this point, you know, obviously they have to tell police. So the NRP subsequently reopens their investigation of Tammy's death. So, um, two days later, Carla meets with the Ni- with a Niagara Falls lawyer, George Walker. 
Walker. Walker. Why did I say Walker? <laughs> She's subsequently. Subsequently, she talked to George Walker. Um, so she is see basically she's seeking legal immunity from the Crown Prosecutor Hulahan. 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 Is that like patches? Patches of Hulahan. Dodgeball. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, she's like, "Hey, I'll I'll tell you things, but I want immunity." Yeah. And um, and they also place her under 24-hour surveillance. On February 17th, detectives finally arrest Paul on several charges and obtained a search warrant for the house. But because his link to the murders are weak, basically, the warrant's very limited. And they're not allowed to remove any evidence that's not like already documented in the warrant. They can't remove any of that from the property. And so all the videotapes that they find, because they know they're looking for these videotapes, any videotapes they find have to be viewed at the house. They had to keep like any damage to a minimum so they can't just be tearing through everything. Yeah. And um, they can't, you know, obviously tear down walls looking for the tapes. So the search of the house lasted 71 days. And they only found one tape. And it had a brief seg- segment of um, Carla performing oral sex on the Jane Doe. That's all they found in there during that little warrant search huh. of 71 days. Um, during a call from the jail, Paul told his lawyer, Ken Murray, that the rape videos were hidden in a ceiling light fixture in his bathroom. Um, Murray found the tapes and hid them from investigators. And then after he resigned as Paul's lawyer, Paul's new attorney, John Rosin, turned the tapes over to police. So then on May 5th, Walker was informed that the government was offering Carla a plea bargain. But she would only receive 12 years in prison, which she only had one week to accept their terms, right? Yes. And then if she declined, the government would um, charge her with two counts of first-degree murder. One count of second degree murder and then like multiple other crimes on top of that to do with all the murders and the rapes and everything. Yeah. Basically, she accepts the plea deal and um, May 14th, Carla's plea deal was finalized and she began giving statements to the police and investigators. And she told them that Paul boasted that he had raped as many as 30 women. Twice as many as police had ever even suspected that he raped. Yeah. So, so they put a publication ban on Carla's preliminary inquiry, and the Crown applied for the ban, which was imposed on July 5th by Francis Kovacs of the Ontario Court Justice. Through her lawyers, Carla supported the ban. So she's like, yeah, I think that's a good idea, guys. Um, Paul's lawyers argued that he would be prejudged by the ban since Carla had been portrayed as his victim. So basically everyone at this point thinks she's just a poor battered wife. Yeah. And he made her do all these things. And, um, though four media outlets and one author opposed the ban, 
Some lawyers argued that rumors could damage the future trial process more than the publication of evidence. Public access to the internet effectively nullified the court's order, as did the proximity to the U.S.-Canada border. So, basically, Canada can't tell American journalists that you can't do this. So, there's American journalists, obviously, putting everything out there. And um, they published details of Carla's testimony and distributed them by electric band breakers. Um, Newspapers in Buffalo, Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York City, and the United Kingdom, as well as radio and television stations close to the border, like, just let all the information leak, you know. Um, Canadians brought copies of the Buffalo News across the border prompting orders to the NRP to arrest all those with more than one copy at the border. <laughs> they, like, really did not want this crap getting out. Right. Um, they confiscated any extra copies of, and then copies of other newspapers, including the New York Times, were turned back at the border and not accepted by distributors in, in Ontario. Paul was tried for the murders of Kristen French and Les- Leslie Mahaffey, in 1995, and his trial included detailed testimony from Carla and the videotapes of the rapes. So people had to sit and watch those. Like, gross. Couldn't imagine being on the jury for something like that. Right? There, it would be horrific. Um, Paul testified that the deaths were accidental. Like, he accidentally dismembered yeah. Leslie. That was... um. Later claiming that Carla was the actual killer, which, you know, I could believe either way. But I think they both did it. On September 1st of 1995, Paul, he's a a big pile. On September 1st of 1995, Paul was convicted. He wasn't convinced. He was convinced that he was convicted. Um, He was convicted of a number of offenses, including two first-degree murder and two aggravated sexual assaults, and sentenced to life in prison without parole for at least 25 years. He was designated a dangerous offender, making him unlikely to ever be released, which is great. Yes. Carla's plea bargain is criticized by many Canadians since Paul's first defense lawyer, Ken Murray, had withheld the videotapes exposing Carla's involvement for 17 months. So he has these tapes that completely prove that she's in on the whole thing. She's enjoying herself. She's having a good time. And then she gets this sweet plea deal out of it. You know, people are pretty pissed off, which I get. That's pretty crappy. Right. So obviously the tapes are considered pretty crucial evidence. Prosecutors basically said they would have never even have agreed to a plea bargain if they had seen them in the first place. Yeah. Which, yeah, who would? Paul was kept in the segregation unit at Kingsbury Penitentiary for his own safety. He was attacked and harassed. To that, I say good. Yep. Um, he was punched in the face by another inmate when he returned from a shower in 1996. And in June of 1999, Five convicts tried to storm his segregation range, and a riot squad used gas to disperse them, which 
This does not make me sad. Right. <laughs> Take him out. Um, February 21st, 2006, the Toronto Star reported that Paul had admitted to sexually assaulting at least 10 other woman, women in attacks not previously attributed to him. So, you know, I told you all the other ones in the first episode, and, like, he's like, I've done all of these. Yeah. Um, most were in 1986, a year before hit, the spree was even attributed to the Scarborough rapist. And authorities suspected Paul in other crimes, including a string of rapes in Amherst, New York, and the drowning of Terry Anderson in St. Catharines. In 2006, Paul gave a prison interview in which he claimed that he had reformed and would make a good parole candidate. But then in 2015, he applied for day parole in Toronto. And according to the victim's lawyer, Tim Danson, it's unlikely that Paul will ever be released in any capacity due to his dangerous offender status. September 2013, Paul was transferred to Millhaven Institution in Bath, where he is reportedly segregated from other inmates. And then this was just a little fun fact. In November 2015, Paul self-published Mad World Order, which is a violent fictional 631-page ebook on Amazon. Later that same month, it's reportedly like an Amazon bestseller. But then it was removed due to public outcry. Like, people were, like, pissed. Yeah. So, February 2018, Paul became eligible for parole. In October 17th of that year, he was denied. Which, I'm glad. Right. Um, his next parole hearing took place on June 22nd of 2021. And it only took one hour of de- deliberation for the judge to deny. Good. So he is still in prison. Paul scored a 35 out of 40 on the psychopathy checklist, which is a psychological assessment tool used to assess the presence of psychopathy in individuals. He's he's a psychopath. Right. So I think I didn't put it in here, but I read Carla only scored like a five out of 40. But to me, some psychopaths, I feel like, can manipulate manipulate it. And she, to me, feels like a manipulator. Like, hardcore. Right. So, now we're going to talk about what Carla's been doing. Back to May 18th of 1993, she was arraigned on two counts of manslaughter. She was tried on June 28th of 1993. The lawyer, Ken Murray, said the videotape showed Carla sexually assaulting four female victims, having sex with a female prostitute in Atlantic City, and at another point, drugging an unconscious victim. That's just some of the stuff it showed Carla doing. Yeah. The revelation that a key piece of evidence had been kept from police for so long created, like, basically outrage. And especially when the public realized that Carla had been Paul's willing accomplice and not forced to do do these things like she led on. Yeah. The tapes were not allowed to be shown to the spectators, which, good, they shouldn't be. Right. And only audio portion was available to them. 
Paul claimed that while he raped and tortured Leslie and Kristen, that Carla was the one who actually killed them. So that's why I was like, I don't know what to put because nobody can agree on how they actually died. We just know they were murdered. So after the videotapes had been found and rumors spread that Carla was an active participant of the crimes, public's pissed and they're basically livid that she got this plea agreement and it was completely unnecessary that she even got it. However, the crown was like, we can't break the agreement. She gave us the information we asked for. Yeah. Basically, they were like, sorry, we have to honor what we said, which... I mean, good for them to stick into their word, but also she's a piece of crap. 12 years is not enough for what she's done. Right. Um, December 2001, Canadian authorities determined that there was no possible future use for the videotapes. And so the six videotapes depicting the torture and rape of Paul and Carl's victims were destroyed. And to that, I say good. Right. Yeah. The disposition of the tapes of Carla watching and commenting on the tapes like, it still exists, but it's sealed. Like, no one can do anything with it or watch it or whatever. In total, Carla was only sentenced to the 12 years. And um, she is taking courses, like, while she's serving her sentence, she's taking courses in sociology through Queen's University. And, like, she's required to pay, like, all her fees for personal needs and everything. She gets, like, a, this, like, little income of 69 Canadian dollars. But she told author Stephen Williams that um, in like a letter that she actually did receive some financial assistance, which is kind of crappy. Like, why? Why? Yeah. Um, She actually graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology from Queens. So she went to prison and got to go to college, which bullshit. So about two thirds through the way of her sentence she's denied for parole because she's basically a risk to reoffend. so she serves her entire 12-year sentence before she is released there's a two-day hearing that was held by judge jean r bolio is that how you'd say that bolio um so that's in june 2005 ruled that carla upon her release date on july 4th of 2005 would still pose a risk to the public. And as a result, she would pose a risk to the public as a result, using section 810.2 of the criminal code, certain restrictions were placed on Carla as a condition of her release. So when she's released, she was to tell police her home address, work address, and who she lives with. She was required to notify police as soon as any of this changed. She was likewise required to notify police of any change to her name, which she did try to change her name, but it was denied. She she does go by other names, though, too. If she planned to be away from her home for more than 48 hours, she had to give 72 hours notice. Um, she was not allowed to contact Paul, the families of Leslie or Kristen, or that of the woman known as Jane Doe, or any other violent which i mean good she shouldn't be able to she was forbidden to be with people under the age of 16 so good because she is a child rapist she was forbidden to consume drugs or other prescription medicine she was required to continue therapy and counseling 
She was required to provide police with the DNA sample, which apparently that doesn't do anybody any good anyway. Right. So since she has been released in 2005, Carla married her lawyer's brother, Larry Bordell, or the Alice. Is that how you say that? Bordialis. They have three kids together. Who, in their right mind, would let this woman have children? Right. Right? So they have three kids. Um, I like to volunteer at her children's school. Oh, she, she couldn't be around kids under 16. Right? So other parents at the school found out, and they were pissed. They were like, we don't want her around our kids. We don't want her near the school. You know, they're. Yeah. I would be. I'd be like, that is a pedophile that you were letting volunteer with my kids. I don't think so. Right. So she was no longer able to volunteer at the schools, <laughs> which should have been the case in the first place. Yeah, I feel like she's a real shit human being. And to even have kids, that was a shitty move. Like, her kids are going to basically go through hell their entire lives just because of who their mother is. Yeah. Like, obviously, we know she's a selfish person. She's a shitty person. She's a convicted child rapist and murderer. I, it just blows my mind that when she had these kids, that they just didn't immediately take them away. Yeah. This is, it's crazy to me. So, yeah, that's, that's that should have been like one of her things to get out of jail and be like, you have to get your team tied. Right. I think. I mean, obviously, I know that they say it's unethical to do stuff like that to people, but... Not when they're that shitty of a person. Right? I mean, obviously, the people she was raping were a little older, but those kids are going to go through those ages. Yeah. Right? And she's obviously a really shitty person. Yeah. I just don't understand. I don't understand, Brian. Tell me. I don't understand. (laughs) Yeah, so that's my story. F Carla, F Paul, left them all. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I couldn't believe like twelve years, and she's done. She just, she's just out in the world. I kind of got a little bit scared for a minute that I didn't re-hit record and had a little panic moment. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh no. no, I'm not doing that again because that was rough. That's my story, man. Well, at least he's still in there. Yeah. He basically, from what I was reading, he'll never get out. Which is good. Yeah. He should. I mean, he was doing all this before he ever met Carla. Yeah. So I think they're both horrible people, but they really fueled each other's fire, like, to do even worse things. I mean, obviously, he was doing horrible things to begin with. Yeah. He was a horrible person. And I think he just... Well, she, like, coerced everybody to be like, oh, I'm so innocent, and he beats me, and right? nothing wrong. And... Poor baby. Right? Yeah, she's real shit bag. Like, the fact that she is out in the world, living her best life, is crazy to me. Yeah. So hide your kids, hide your wife. They raping everybody up in here. They are. All right. We done. We done for this week. And for that reason, we out. (laughs) But before we're out, please go like the podcast. 
rate it on Apple, um, leave a review, like our Facebook page, Deathly Afraid Podcast, Instagram, something. Do it. Do the Insta. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram at Deathly Afraid Podcast. Um, email us Deathly Afraid Pod at gmail.com. What else? Send me some ice cream. Who's been craving ice cream? Today. <laughs> no, we ain't got none. We ain't got no ice cream, which is better for me that we don't have ice cream. This is the last thing I need. We had ice cream cake the other day. Somebody decided not to put it in the freezer when they were asked to, and so it all melted. I'm not that somebody, just so everybody knows. She's not that somebody. It was our oldest son. No ice cream for anybody in this house. Right. All right, guys. Well, thanks for coming back. We will be back next week. Bye.